Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley, and as always, thanks for listening to this episode of my podcast. Am I the only one who's sick and tired of the constant drama that is the debt ceiling? We should start with a little bit of history. According to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, the debt ceiling was enacted at $11.5 billion back in 1917. In 1939, a debt limit covering nearly all federal debt was created and set at $45 billion. As of August this year, the ceiling is set at $28.4 trillion. We are told, and probably rightly, that defaulting on our debt would cause a recession. So why has this become such a political football? Why have Republicans in the Senate, like Ted Cruz, threatened and then backed off a filibuster? Cruz called the debt ceiling drama a game of chicken. Should the people we elect be even playing a game of chicken? In some ways, members of Congress do act like kids when it comes to the debt ceiling. It happens regardless of the makeup of the Congress and regardless the political party of the president. What's shameful is the fact that they often, as in this case, kick the can down the road. The new deadline is early December, not really that far to kick. As you might expect, Trumpist Republicans decried the deal, saying Mitch McConnell caved to the Democrats. Not that his opinion matters. He's got other things on his mind, like getting his allies to defy congressional subpoenas. Anyway, back to the debt ceiling. I guess if we're calling a spade a spade, we'd call out the Republicans for pushing a tax cut during the Trump years that massively increased the debt. We could also call out the Democrats for treating a two-month halt to the prospect of a U.S. default as some great victory. Honestly, I don't understand the current foolishness that masquerades as politics these days. The nation lurches from one crisis to the next, without actually fixing the last crisis. The social safety net bill, the infrastructure bill, also last week, we've moved on, right? And what does this have to do with the lives of everyday hardworking Americans? Damned if I know. And while we're at it, the media can do a much better job explaining all this for what it is, partisan one-upmanship. All the while, Jobs growth appears to be stagnant, with a prediction of 500,000 new jobs crashing to a 194,000 reality. I submit that's what people care about, getting back to work in decent paying jobs. The infrastructure and safety net bills hold out the promise of better times ahead. Yet the same people who would watch the nation default on its debt also don't want to commit one thin dime to uplifting the poorest and most vulnerable in our society. And saddest of all, these same people could end up controlling the Congress after next year's elections. It's a lot to take in, and no one could blame just plain folks if they throw their hands up and declare a pox on both houses. Speaking of which, how many folks are actually following the release of and fallout from the Pandora Papers? No, not the music streaming service. An amazing look at the interconnected nature of money and power. By the way, worldwide money 
worldwide power. First, a look at the particulars. Pandora comes from Greek mythology, something about a sealed jar containing the evils of the world. A consortium of the world's journalists, 600 in all from 117 countries, went through nearly 12 million records from 14 firms involved in the offshore financial industry. The findings are startling. Some 330 politicians from 90 different countries are involved in hiding their substantial assets in these offshore accounts. They include 35 current and former national leaders. That would be heads of state. Some might call this money laundering, but in most cases, it's perfectly legal. It's about hiding wealth, and some of the participants have much to hide. It allows people to donate to political parties and campaigns through a network of dummy corporations located offshore, through the auspices of firms that specialize in helping them hide their assets. And of course, there's that little thing about avoiding taxes. Some of the excesses chronicled in the Pandora Papers are mind-boggling, especially when a monarch or head of state makes ostentatious purchases while their citizens struggle to buy food. Oddly enough, in addition to little or no regulation countries like Panama, Dubai, and Switzerland, two U.S. states, South Dakota and Delaware, also offer safe havens to hide money. As we live in the world, where the divide between rich and poor countries continues to widen, the ugliness of the super-rich hiding their money while fighting tooth and nail against modest tax increases comes into sharp focus. Sadly, the ability of these people to buy politicians around the world makes it highly unlikely that any real change will take place soon. Or will it? Up next, monetizing hate. Is that what Facebook does? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Those of you who have heard my podcasts in the past know that I detest algorithms, in particular when it comes to choosing music. I've lately come on to Spotify. I'm, I'm a late bloomer that way. And it has its uses. I'll, I'll give it that. But when I develop playlists, in many cases from my own music, uh, and use Spotify, I end up with recommendations that make no sense at all to me. And I say that because I audition the stuff that they send. And it's almost as though my taste confounds their algorithms. But that's another discussion for another day. Some of you already know the name Frances Haugen. She's the former product manager at Facebook who blew the whistle on problematic practices at the company as the source for a Wall Street Journal series called Facebook Files. Haugen testified before a Senate committee last week, and what she said about Facebook and its practices was not pretty. The deepest dive came in an article in MIT's Technology Review, which had done some research on Facebook prior to Haugen's revelations. I can't get too deep in the weeds here simply because I'm completely 
out of my depth. I barely understand algorithms themselves. Yet the long and the short of it is this. Francis Haugen says the platform can fix its problems, and there are many, but they won't. Here are her exact words from her testimony before Congress. Quote, I believe Facebook's products can harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. These problems are solvable. A safer, free speech respecting, more enjoyable social media is possible. But there is one thing that I hope everyone takes away from these disclosures. It is that Facebook can change, but it is clearly not going to do so on its own. End quote. Think about that. Facebook can change, but it will have to be made to change. It's deep, right? Hagen says Facebook's algorithms and platform design decisions are the problem currently. Usually, lawmakers and others tend to focus on what the platform allows and does not allow. Facebook doesn't just have one algorithm. It has dozens, maybe thousands. They're divided between traditional ones and what are called machine learning algorithms. You completely lose me after that. But one thing seems to jump out from Haugen's whistleblowing. Facebook is willing to tolerate a certain amount of disinformation and hate speech in order to keep those profits flowing. Put simply, these algorithms respond to a person's individual choices to control what they see and what's prominent in their news feeds. For example, I used at least five different articles about Frances Haugen, her appearance on 60 Minutes, and her testimony before Congress to write what I am currently voicing. None of them came from Facebook. I don't use Facebook to get my news, attitudes, or opinions. However, you know, that's just me. Another example, the day after Haugen's 60 Minutes appearance, Facebook and several of its affiliated platforms went dark. Although Facebook insisted it wasn't hacked and that the problem was internal, I couldn't help but wonder if something more sinister was afoot. But again, that's just me. It was only during the blackout that I came to know that 3 billion people around the world were affected by Facebook going dark. Facebook, by the way, and affiliated platforms. That is, in fact, a great deal of power, no matter how you try and slice it. Francis Hawkins says Congress should regulate the platform to curb its excesses. At this point, I'm not so sure. Congress is so bitterly divided that the lure of regulating Facebook and other platforms would be an invitation to partisanship we would soon regret. Is there another solution? The answer is way above my pay grade, but Hawkins' revelations indicate something does, in fact, need to happen. Does anybody want to see Mark Zuckerberg sit in front of another congressional committee playing the tech version of three-card Monty while committee members pretend they know what he's talking about? Or are we perhaps past the point of no return, where algorithms control pretty much every aspect of our lives? Think about that for a minute, folks. Every aspect of our lives. And they do it in an insidious way. 
They don't tell you, hi, I'm Facebook. I'm going to control you now. What they do is simply push news at you, push content at you, push all these different things at you. And before you know it, you become essentially a servant to those algorithms. I remember many, many years ago, a radio consultant telling a staff meeting at a radio station I worked for that he knew us and our audience better than we knew ourselves. And I think that's kind of sort of the point of algorithm, that a computer, some software, knows us better than we know ourselves. To be real honest, that scares me. Perish the thought. When we come back, why are black women the least recovered from the pandemic? And a judge presses pause on Texas's draconian abortion law. Thanks so much for staying with us. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. As I mentioned earlier, September's employment figures were disappointing, to say the least. Keep in mind that conservatives kept telling us the job numbers would swell as soon as those pesky supplemental unemployment benefits were halted. Well, they're gone. And still, employment lags behind predictions. Even more troubling are the groups of people who are being left behind whatever the recovery may bring, and whatever, in fact, the recovery is. Black Americans and workers without college degrees are finding work harder and harder to come by. This in the, fa- in the face of worker shortages in several key sectors of the economy. Consider this, as of the end of August, 8.4 million Americans are looking for work. That's roughly the population of New York City. The black unemployment rate stands at 8.8%, not a historic high, but still twice the rate of whites. Americans 25 and older with a college degree have fully recovered their pandemic job losses and did so by May of this year. Same age Americans 25 and older without college degrees remain 4.6 million jobs below pre-pandemic levels. That is a stark disparity. Even further, black people with college degrees are recovering at a slower rate than white high school graduates. Yet the least recovered people in this economy happen to be black women who are down 550,000 jobs just since February. It should be said that many of these disparities are built into the American system. That's right, built into you might say part of America's DNA. Black women generally have more difficulty accessing quality daycare, less flexibility in their working hours and the like. Yet right-wing lawmakers and the media point out that there are 11 million job openings in the country, more than enough to employ everyone looking for work. Yet one big problem 
is the fact that many women, particularly women of color, don't want to go back to the precarious work-life balance they had before the pandemic. If they do, they want to be paid better for it. And there is the conundrum, not just of the conservative or right-wing community, but also the business community. The business community is staring at the possibility, no, the likelihood of having to raise wages. And that scares many business people. Now, when it comes to wage hikes, this has not yet happened completely in sectors like healthcare and hospitality. Advocates for vulnerable groups say the government needs to do more to level the playing field. For example, a recent New York Times article, and this boggled my mind, points out that while other rich nations contribute about 14,000 US dollars for the average toddler's childcare, in the United States, it's about $500. In other words, as the article says, we in the US are an outlier. The Democrats' social safety net bill tries to address that inequity. But God forbid you ask some of those people who are salting away billions in offshore bank accounts to help pay for a two-year-old child whose mother cannot afford to work at, and get paid and take care of their kids at the same time. That's why I say a lot of these inequities are built into the American system. One other thing I didn't even think of. Many job openings use software, algorithms perhaps, to screen applicants rather than a face-to-face -face interview. This tends to screen out applicants unfamiliar with keywords or applicants that have gaps in their resume. The central question is whether America is prepared to live with the pandemic-related inequities that are piled on top of inequities that have existed historically. And don't think that these inequities are limited to black people. White workers without a college degree are also taking it on the chin and facing some of the same obstacles. And don't think for an instant that these folks do not want to work. If, as we said in previous, previous episodes, workers are taking stock of their work choices in the wake of the pandemic, so too should their bosses. Makes sense, doesn't it? And speaking of sense, kudos to U.S. District Court Judge Robert Pittman, who issued a scathing 113-page takedown of Texas's ridiculous abortion law. That's the one that would outlaw a woman's constitutional right to choose after just six weeks. A short bit of Judge Pittman's ruling is in order here, so you understand where this judge was coming from. Quote, from the moment SB 8, which is the bill in question here, went into effect, women have been unlawfully pre prevented from exercising control over their lives in ways that are protected by the Constitution. The other courts may find a way to avoid this conclusion, and that's theirs to decide. This court will not sanction one more day of this offensive deprivation of such an important right, end quote. Judge Pittman was appointed to the bench by Barack Obama. 
this order could well be reversed at some point, especially since Texas lawmakers say that they will appeal. That's why some of the few abortion providers left in the state of Texas are hesitant to begin to provide abortions until this legal abomination is gone once and for all. Remember, the law deputizes ordinary citizens to go not just after providers, but anyone who aids a woman, a woman that is, in exercising her right to choose. It also makes no provision for victims of rape or incest. At least one judge, if not the U.S. Supreme Court, sees this law as the sham that it is. To which I say, Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.